Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. I, I was a, a pretty typical boy, I guess, growing up, active, played a lot of sports, and because of that, I enjoyed food, but I wouldn't say it was necessarily the center of my life, but then that strange thing happened in teenage dumb, many of you who have been teenage boys, or maybe you've had teenage boys, maybe some of you can relate, I all of a sudden acquired this massive appetite, I mean, I just ate massive amounts, you know, invite a friend over on a Friday night, rent a movie, and you get two large little Caesar's pizzas, one for each of you. That, that, was, that was nothing. And this kept up, you know, into my 20s and through my 30s. But, but here's the thing. I, I was never satisfied. I mean, I was for maybe a couple hours, but then two or three hours later, I'd get hungry again. You know, I was like a baby. You had to feed me every few hours or I'd get cranky. You know, they finally invented that term hangry a few years ago. I was like, yes, that's me. Where's that term been my whole life? But, but what does hangry signify? Again, it signifies I was never ultimately satisfied. E- even the most satisfying meal ever only lasted just a few hours and then I was hungry again looking for more. Well, that's a picture of what we see in our passage passage this morning, an incredibly significant passage where Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's incredibly significant for many reasons, which we will get into. But most importantly, this text, it just magnifies Christ, and it's wonderful. I I shared a a coffee with Joe a a few weeks back, and and, uh, I was just asking him what he was reading in Scripture, and he said he just kind of keeps finding himself in the Sermon on the Mount because he just, he wants to know Jesus. He wants to be closer to Jesus. And I just pray that for today. I pray that at the end of today's study, we would just know and glorify Christ more as we have the privilege of digging deep into him and his word this morning. So let's get into this. As we just read, this section of Mark begins with Jesus caring for the apostles as they return to him exhausted, barely having time to eat. As verse 31 says, what were they returning from? Why were they so exhausted? 
Well, that goes back to earlier in the chapter, verses 7 through 13, where Jesus had sent them out two by two as missionaries, going from town to town, proclaiming the gospel, casting out demons, healing the sick. So they're returning from that, but it appears they're worn out. And that's the way ministry can often be. Certainly the, the 12 apostles returned excitedly telling all that all Jesus, everything that had transpired. I mean, God had, had healed people through them. They'd certainly seen many people respond positively to the gospel. It's awesome to watch God work through you, yet it can be exhausting. Ministries often like that. It's wonderful and exhausting all at the same time. And Chris said, Amen. Jesus knew about this more than anyone, of course. He was constantly pursued by the crowds, constantly giving himself to people. And in many places in the Gospels, it says in response, he retreated to a desolate place to spend time alone with the Father. So knowing what they needed, caring for them, he invited them to a desolate place away from people so they could rest for a bit. Uh, I, uh, this has nothing to do with the text. I just have to admit, although I grew up a sort of an Orange County surf skate kid, the, the older I get, the more I want this. I just want to be out there somewhere in God's creation with a horse and a stack full of books, if only. But it's not in the cards for me right now, nor was it in the cards for the apostles. As we see in verse 32, they loaded up in a boat to head out to the desolate place, but the crowds had other ideas. This is the way ministry can be sometimes, too. You might be exhausted, but God has work for you to do, people for you to care for, people for you to minister to. And Chris said, Amen. And that's exactly what happened. Some, some people saw them and apparently were desperate to be with Jesus, to, to get something from Him, to hear more from Him. So they, they raced ahead by land so that by the time Jesus and His crew reached the shore, there was already a large crowd gathered there waiting for Him. And for those of you who are parents, maybe you can relate to this somewhat. You know, when you have kids, it's like they never stop needing you. And they don't seem to be really too concerned about how tired you are, what you're doing, what you need. They're really just concerned with what they need from you. I can't tell you how many times I've been exhausted at the end of the day and, and one of my kids, you know, will call my name. You know, they, they need something from me and, uh, you know, I hate to say I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm far from the world's perfect dad and sometimes my response isn't what it should be. You know, I mean, I help them, but I'm just sort of grumbling about it, you know, internally. But, you know, frankly, more often than not, maybe that's my initial response, but then I see my child whom I love and I want nothing more than to help them. I'm glad they need me. And so I joyfully help them, tired or not. And that, of course, is the right response and that's Jesus' response as we see here in verse 34. From a human perspective, Jesus could have easily been annoyed. It can be frustrating when you have plans and someone intrudes on them. They needed rest. They needed a recharge. Jesus could have been annoyed and irritated, but he wasn't. In fact, we really see this beautiful picture of who Jesus is here. Instead of being annoyed, it says he had compassion on them. You just stop and think about that for a moment. I mean, this is God. Jesus is God. He knows these people better than they know themselves. He, he knows not everyone there wanted him for the right reasons. He, he knew that many seemed to believe, but they didn't really. In fact, in John's recounting of this event, it says the next day, almost all the people left him specifically turned off by what he was saying. But even so, as God, Christ, who is love, has compassion on this mixed crowd, some of whom desire him who is truth, but most that do not. Yet he still has compassion on them. How, how graciously loving our God is. 
Now, we're going to camp out on Jesus' compassion here in a bit, but right now I want to emphasize the form his compassion takes. Again, we look at verse 34. It says, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, of course, this was an agrarian culture where this analogy made perfect sense. Everyone at the time understood sheep will wander to their detriment or even death if there's not a shepherd to care for them. But not only was it culturally understood, this was also an Old Testament illusion. This word picture is used in multiple places in the Old Testament, such as in Numbers 27, verses 16 and 17, where Moses, before he died, he's concerned about God appointing his successor. And so he says, Let the Lord appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, that the congregation may not be as sheep who have no shepherd. And of course, even more significantly, in John 10, Christ refers to himself as the good shepherd, the ultimate shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So this is a loaded term, but again, it's really just this beautiful picture of who Christ is. He's the perfect shepherd who leads, guides, directs, feeds, and dies for the sheep. And make no mistake, we are the sheep. Of course, in this immediate context, the crowd or the sheep, Israel had no true shepherds. They were being fed to the wolves spiritually. But as I referenced in John 10, all of us are sheep wandering to certain death unless the shepherd saves us. So just like the crowd that day, we desperately need the good shepherd. But look at how the good shepherd specifically cares for the sheep here. What does he do? He teaches them. Luke's recounting of this adds that he taught them about the kingdom of God. He proclaimed the gospel to them. This is the ultimate way that God cares for, guides, directs his sheep. That's why God's living, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word takes center stage in this church. It's why we sing the words, why we pray the words, why we make space to preach and teach the word, because that's the primary way that we know Christ and grow in Christ. And that also means the word, our Bibles, must be absolutely central in our lives personally. We must be feeding on the word constantly, daily consuming it, meditating on it. We must be doing this. I, encourage, I can't encourage you enough, enough if you aren't in the habit of prioritizing this in your life. Do it now. You must. And maybe one of the things that will help us to do that is to realize that when we're sitting down with our Bibles, we're actually spending time with the king of the universe. You're reading his words. He's speaking to you through his words. You're growing in the love and knowledge of him. The word is central to knowing God in Christ. It's hard to say you love Jesus if you don't prioritize getting to know him and be with him by spending time with him in his word. There are a few other more important uses of our time. Make this a priority. You will be rewarded. I promise. Open up your Bible daily, praying to God that you would know Him better. And even if you don't have an oogly-googly feeling in your stomach every single time you read God's Word, it doesn't matter. I promise over time, it will do a profound work in you. Because the primary way to know God, grow in God, mature in God, have peace in God, have joy in God, is through His Word. That's the primary means He uses to work in our lives. It won't fail you because He won't fail you. So I encourage you, make this a priority. 
So that's the form Christ's compassion took in this case, teaching. And apparently he was teaching for quite a while because verse 35 tells us it was getting late and his apostles advised him it was time to, to pack it up and send everybody home so they could get some dinner. But Jesus responds in a shocking way. In verse 37, he says to his apostles, you give them something to eat. Now remember, verse 44 says there were 5,000 men there that day, but almost assuredly many of those men were married, so they had wives. And almost assuredly many of those couples had children, likely a lot of children. There were big families at the time. So this was actually way, way over 5,000 people. Some have estimated maybe as high as 20,000. We don't know for sure, but this is a huge crowd. And Jesus tells his disciples to feed them. I mean, that seems crazy. Why would he say that? Well, in John's recounting of this event, he actually gives us the answer. In John 6.6, 6, it says, Jesus said this to test them, for he knew what he would do. So there were two reasons Jesus answered this way. First, he was testing his apostles' faith. This, this shouldn't have been a completely outlandish statement to them. Remember, the section began with them needing rest from being sent out, in which they witnessed God doing multiple miracles through them. On the heels of that, it seems they should have had some faith in Christ to provide supernaturally instead of just being stuck thinking naturally or materially, but they weren't, so he was testing their faith. But the second reason Jesus does this is because, again, as the verse I just read, John 6, 6 says, he knew what he was going to do. In his omniscience as God, he knew what he was going to do, and their incredulous response would only serve to validate the profundity of the miracle that was about to take place. And they were incredulous. Don't miss that. Verse 37, they say, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 200 denarii was the equivalent of about eight months of wages. So they were essentially saying, you know, Jesus, we, we left everything to follow you. But even before that, most of us, we were subsistence level fishermen. We had very little to begin with. Uh, yeah, sure, give us a sec while we reach into our pockets and pull out thousands of dollars to go buy food. Oh, wait, we just remembered. We've got nothing. In their minds, there was no way they could fulfill this command. From a human material perspective, it was impossible. Even to his apostles who had witnessed his doing miracles to feed these people, which perfectly sets up the miracle that he was about to do. Now, speaking of miracles, let's take a moment to define what a miracle is. We throw that word, that word around so much, it's just lost its meaning, and I don't want us to lose the significance of this incredible event. And this is a significant event, so much so this is the only miracle, aside from the resurrection, of course, that all four Gospels record. This is significant. So what then is a miracle? Well, one of the more popular definitions of a miracle would, you know, go, go something like this. A miracle is God's breaking the laws of nature or making a, an exception to the laws of nature in order to accomplish something. You know, like God causing the sun to stand still, prolonging the, the daylight hours so Joshua could defeat the enemies of the Israelites. There, there's no natural explanation for that. God apparently broke the laws of nature to accomplish that. Now, I understand that definition. That definition seems to make sense. But as you think it through a little bit more, you realize it actually doesn't really comport with Scripture. 
That's why a better definition, and, and a definition that one mo you know, most theologians would use, is something more along the lines of, a miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Did you catch that? It's a less common kind of God's activity, not one where he breaks natural law. And the reason it's so important to delineate that is because saying God breaks the laws of nature implies nature is working independently of God, but then every once in a while, God intervenes, he breaks those laws, he causes this miracle to, to occur, and then he goes back to being God while nature just does what it does by following its natural law. But that most certainly is not what Scripture says. Scripture is very clear that God is providentially in control of everything. Even though we, we understand the natural processes that you know, cause the grass to grow, Scripture is very clear that ultimately it's God who's causing the grass to grow. In other words, He is continually causing and maintaining all things to accomplish His purposes. Now, God might most often use what we would call natural laws and processes in this world to accomplish that, but ultimately, He is the cause of all those things. He's behind all those things. And that's what's so cool about this proper definition of miracle. It's, it's not God's breaking in and acting. It's just a less common kind of God's activity. It might seem crazy to us. It might be unexplainable to our finite fallen minds, but to God, the craziest of miracles is just a less common kind of his activity because he's God. He's so far above and beyond us that, that events that defy human explanation are just a less common kind of activity for him. Our God is, is so great. And of course, that's true of Jesus because he is God. So as God, fully God, fully man, Jesus knew the miracle that he was about to do, which is astounding to us, but just a less common kind of activity for him. Back to the text. Verse 38, undaunted by the apostles' incredulous response, he directs them to go around the crowd and see what they can scrounge up. And we're told they were able to acquire a grand total of two fish and five loaves. John adds the detail that apparently there was a boy there whose mom had packed him a lunch. He was the one who had the, the five loaves and a couple fish. And by the way, when, when you read this, you know, you read five loaves, you might be thinking, you know, five wonder bread loaves, you know, it's like, what in the world does one little boy need with five loaves of bread? He can make like 30 or 40 sandwiches with that. I mean, good night. That, that's not what this is. The, these were small, flat loaves that one person could, could just easily consume in one meal. It's a very small amount of food, but it was more than enough for Christ. After all, he created a universe out of nothing. So he directs everyone to sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties, which, by the way, would have made the crowd easy to count, and he prayed to God the Father, from whom all things come, giving thanks. And then it just says he broke the loaves. He gave the bread and fish to the apostles, who then gave it to the people. There's no description whatsoever as to how this miracle took place. It just says everyone ate until they were satisfied, and then there were 12 baskets full of bread and fish left over that were collected. Now, I... I greatly, greatly resist getting into all this sort of weird numerology. People have read all sorts of crazy things into the numbers of Scripture, and I resist that. Most, most of that's nonsense. But certainly it seems here this mention of 12 baskets is intentional. 
It seems to show the precision of Christ as God. He knew exactly how much to make for everyone to be satisfied and then to have exactly 12 baskets left over, one for each apostle. At the very least, even if you don't buy into that, at the very least, it shows the abundant provision of God. Everyone ate until they were satisfied, and then there were still plenty of leftovers. So everyone ate, they were satisfied, and then verse 44 says, And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men, end of story, done. So many of the miracle events in Scripture are told in this matter-of-fact way. There's no embellishment. In this case, like I said, there's not even a description of how it happened. It just states it, and then we move on. Like earlier in Mark, where where Jesus uh, raised Jairus' daughter, and then he just sort of -of matter-of-factly says, you know, you should give her something to eat. You know, no over-the-top description needed here. Which comports with the definition of miracles that we just worked through. Like I said, God spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. What's taking a few loaves and fish of, uh, of bread and fish and, and feeding thousands of people to him? It's just a less common way of his conducting business because he's God. But we're not. To us, it's unbelievable, which leads to that second part of the miracle definition I provided. Miracles are activities in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. That's the point of miracles. Miracles are never an end unto themselves. That's why John in his gospel always uses the word sign instead of miracle, because it's always pointing to something. Probably the most definitive passage on this is Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, which says, This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. In other words, God uses miracles to confirm that the person and or word preached is true. And in this case, it was yet another proof that Jesus is the Christ, which of course is incredibly significant. Everything Jesus said and did confirmed he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He is God in flesh, come to save his people. That's what the miracles and and all of Scripture testify about him. But in this significant miracle recorded in all four Gospels, we're not only reminded that Jesus Jesus is God and Savior, which again is fundamental, but we're also reminded of two incredibly significant aspects of who he is as God. In other words, we, we learn more about Christ and our relationship in him. And the first of those truths is, we see the compassion of Christ in which he rejoices in doing us good. And we touched on the compassion of Christ earlier in verse 34. I said we were going to circle back to that camp out on a bit, so that's what we're doing. As we see here again, God has compassion on everyone. I mentioned earlier the crowd was largely made up of people who were not truly serving him, who didn't want him for the right reasons, yet he still had compassion on them. He still taught them. He still fed them. And that's still, of course, the case today. God causes the the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Those who live their lives with their middle finger up at God, they still have jobs and families and nice houses that God allows them to have. And also, as we see in Christ here, the greatest compassion God can show on the unsaved is sending people to proclaim the gospel to them. 
As God reminded Moses in Exodus 34, God is merciful and he's gracious, but he will by no means clear the guilty. God is compassionate, but he's also just. And all who die rejecting him and his compassionate offer of salvation by sending his son to die on the cross will suffer eternal death. So the ultimate way we can show the compassion of Christ is certainly to care for people's temporal needs as Christ does here, but also as Christ does here to faithfully and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people can be saved and live in the compassionate embrace of God for eternity. So God is compassionate on all people, but Scripture is also clear that there's a special compassion that he shows his people whom he has saved. And that is, as I said, in his compassion, he rejoices in doing us, his people, good. Now, of course, we find that throughout Scripture, but this is stated explicitly in Jeremiah 32, where God's prophesying through Jeremiah that although his people Israel have undergone the judgment of God because of their sin, one day he will restore them to their land, he will be their God. And then he says in verse 41 about his people, I will rejoice in doing them good. God rejoices in doing his people good. I want to marinate in that for a moment. This is so important to knowing who God is. Because it seems, many of us, we have this tendency to, you know, sort of lean into one extreme or the other. In the world today, I would argue maybe in the church at large today, if there's one error that many of us fall into, you know, it's, well, of course God rejoices in doing me good. I'm me. I'm awesome. If God had a refrigerator, he'd have my picture on it. That, that's how many people think, because their understanding of God's love includes a very low view of God's holiness, a very high view of their goodness. They don't take their sin or God's wrath against their sin nearly seriously enough. So just in case anyone falls into that error, we are not worthy of his love. We're sinners worthy of eternal death. That's why it's mercy. That's why it's compassion. That's why it's grace. It's unmerited. That, that's the gospel. That's the message of the cross, Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we, while we were still sinners, while we, while we were still in hostile rebellion against God, Christ died for us in love. But others of us, we, we know that. We're strong in the holiness of God. We know what we're worthy of, and it's not salvation. We love the gospel. We, we preach it accurately. And we know that God is love, and he's merciful, and he's compassionate. But strangely, even though we know that intellectually, it almost feels weird to say God rejoices in doing his people good. I mean, he rejoices in doing me good. I'm a sinner saved by grace. He knows my heart. He, knew, he knows who I am. How could that possibly be? Well, if you fall into that error, I also want to remind you that this is part of the gospel too. God's love is astounding. God's compassion is astounding. Yes, God is holy and just and he will judge. But again, I point you back to Exodus 34 where God reveals himself to Moses and he, and he says he's slow to anger, but he's abounding in love. He will judge in righteousness, make no mistake, but he's slow to anger, but abounding in love. I love what John Piper says about that passage. He says, the point is the contrast between the sluggishness of his anger and the effusiveness of his love. God loves to show his love 
to the unlovely. God loves to give strength to the weak. God loves to show compassion on his sheep who desperately depend on him. He loves to show compassion on you. This is God the Trinity who saved us. But I want to point out something else that's incredibly significant. And that is that God does not lavish us, lavish, lavish his compassion on us because he needs to, that, that he's somehow deficient without us. It's quite the opposite. We're deficient without him. God rejoices in doing us good, one, because it brings him glory, but two, because he knows through that we attain the satisfaction that we've desired all of our lives. And that's him. And that's the second aspect of Christ we're reminded of in this miracle. He is the only, ultimate, true satisfaction. All four Gospels stress, as does Mark here in verse 42, that everyone ate and were satisfied. They had their fill. They were completely satisfied. Now, obviously, this is referring to physical satisfaction. Their hunger was satisfied. But ultimately, this is pointing to the fact that Christ is the true satisfaction, spiritual satisfaction. He's the only one that can satisfy the relentless longing in our hearts that never seems to be satisfied. It doesn't matter how much we stuff it with other things, just like that teenage boy shortly after you're unsatisfied wanting more. It's a merry-go-round that never ends until you find Christ the satisfaction. Unless you feel I'm reading something into this text that isn't there, we need to connect this to John's recounting of this event, where in his gospel, the Spirit wrote through him in chapter 6, it says the next day the crowd found Jesus again, and this time instead of feeding them, he challenges them. He says, you only want me because I fed you, but really you should want me because I have eternal life. And they responded by asking for a sign, like the, the manna that was provided for their ancestors in the wilderness. You remember, they're thinking temporally. And many of these people, they were likely poor. They didn't have refrigerators and pantries full of food. They couldn't just run out to Trader Joe's and pick up something to eat. So, man, they're thinking this guy could be a lifetime supply of free food. Like Moses and the man in the wilderness, you know, back in Exodus, that heavenly food that was provided for an entire generation. We like that sign. How about that one? Can we see that one again? But Christ wants them to think deeper. And he says, John 6, 32, 33, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. They were spiritually blind. They didn't get it. They were totally focused on the temporal and Jesus providing them free physical food. So Christ just bluntly says, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This echoes Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's one of the most profound truths that this miracle points to, that Christ, the bread of life, always satisfies. He's the only thing that satisfies. Yet so many of us, we're, we're like these Israelites. We're just constantly looking to anything and everything but God for satisfaction. We look to created things to provide us when only the Creator can. 
And I'm not just talking about or to the unsaved. I'm talking to the saved. We can fall prey to this every bit as much. We've been saved. We, we praise God. And then we all too easily just go right back to putting our hope in created things, other things to provide us joy, peace, contentment, satisfaction. What do I mean? Well, let's take stock. Let's ask ourselves a few questions. Is there anything more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God? Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you? Are you substituting something for God in your heart, making that the center of your life? Often for Christians, it's not substituting. We would never say we're you know, substituting something for God, but we're allowing something else to compete on the mantle of our hearts with God. Things like career, money, success, health and fitness, love, a spouse, kids, ministry. Notice, none of those things in that list I just rattled off are inherently sinful, but they're not God. They're not ultimate things. They're created things that we treat as ultimate because we're looking to them to provide us the joy, peace, contentment, and satisfaction that only God can provide. And this is what Christ is reminding us of in this miracle, in his bread of life statement. If we are looking to some created thing, even a gift from God, to give us the contentment and satisfaction that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver, it will break your heart, and it will leave you in inconsolable despair because it can't bear the weight you're asking it to. It's not ultimate. And again, I'm not just talking to the unsaved. Yes, Christ is the only satisfaction in that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one is saved but through Him. But for those of us who have been saved, we can't forget what salvation entails. We have eternal life. We can't forget what eternal life truly is. In other words, we don't just get saved and then just go on living our lives with our own desires and goals and dreams and comforts. We have eternal life. And Christ defined eternal life for us in John 17, 1 through 3, where he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom, ha uh, whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Christ says eternal life isn't only living forever in his presence, as awesome as that is, we can't wait for that. It's actually far deeper than that, and it's far more immediate than that. Eternal life is knowing God. That's what we need to spend our lives doing, knowing God, which goes back to scriptures we were talking about earlier, because that's the primary way we know God. But we never truly know ourselves, this world, have wisdom, know the meaning and purpose of life, have satisfaction until we know God. Knowing God and worshiping, pleasing, and glorifying Him, that's the very reason for our existence. That's why that's the very thing that provides us true joy, satisfaction, and contentment because it's how God created us to function. He created us to find our greatest satisfaction in Him. 
So any lesser pursuit of satisfaction will only certainly lead to dissatisfaction and a never-ending pursuit to find what only can be found in Christ. If you are saved, you have eternal life, which means you know God in Christ. You know God. I, I encourage you, don't fall back into the deception of this world thinking that some lesser thing can satisfy you. It can't and it never will. Stop looking to a job or, or health or a relationship or whatever it is that you think is going to provide you the satisfaction that only God can provide. God in Christ is the all-satisfying end of every longing we have. In His love, He provided the only way for sinners attempting to usurp His role as God to be saved. But not only to be saved, but to eat of the bread that satisfies forever, Jesus Christ, the never-ending well of grace. Through that, God is magnified and we are eternally satisfied. If you are not saved, you can have that now through the glorious gospel of Christ. And if you are saved, you already have it. We don't have to wait for it. We have eternal life now. We know God now. And in his, in his immense compassion, we have true satisfaction in Him, our treasure. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.